Welcome to episode 10 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. In today's episode, we are joined by John Eberhardt for part two of our two-part series. In this episode, we focus heavily on rut tactics, primary scrape areas, hunting bedding areas during the rut, how John's tactics evolve from the pre-rut to the peak rut to the post-rut, We also get John's advice for those suffering from buck fever and John's opinion on his legacy in the hunting community. Friendly reminder, if you're listening to this podcast and you'd like to see it hosted on other platforms, you can help me by subscribing to this YouTube channel, sharing the podcast with a friend, or making a donation towards hosting fees using the link in the video description below. Today's show is brought to you by UltimatePredatorGear.com. Ultimate Predator Gear manufactures two-dimensional decoys designed to be mounted to a bow or firearm. What's unique about these stalker decoys is they are designed with a shooting port cut out of the center of the decoy. This allows totally hands-free decoy operation ensures the decoy is always between you and your quarry. I can personally attest to the effectiveness of these decoys. Last year, my buddy Tim Buno used his antelope stalker decoy to help close the distance and get an arrow off at a great antelope buck. If you haven't seen that hunt, it's available on my YouTube channel. Ultimate Predator Gear stalker decoys are available in a variety of species, including white-tailed deer, elk, mule deer, turkey, moose, and more. Check out ultimatepredatorgear.com for more information. Guys, the off-season will be over before we know it. Now is a perfect time to visit Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. There's not a better product on the market for eliminating unwanted noise. Stealth Outdoors manufactures an incredibly durable product for a great value. Designed from the ground up with the mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Speaking of mobile setups, check out the innovative new products designed by the folks at MobileHuntingGear.com. MobileHuntingGear.com's latest product is the Talon Wraps. Talon wraps are designed to lock onto the square or circular tubing of most popular climbing sticks and offer an incredibly lightweight method to neatly secure your climbing stick straps, daisy chains, or climbing aiders to your climbing sticks. Stop by Mobile Hunting Gear's Facebook page for more details. Mobile Hunting Gear also offers customized solutions for just about any mobile setup. Reach out to mobilehuntinggear.com for more information and a customized quote. Now, on to the podcast. John, welcome back. Well, thank you, Jeremy. My pleasure. Yeah, glad to have you back. And I want to do a quick recap for anybody that didn't listen to episode one. In part one, we talked about getting organized and staying disciplined, how big bucks use security cover, how and when you do or do not use game cameras, what types of setups make for good early mornings or good early season morning setups. You covered your speed tour how you interpret the sign that you observe during the speed tour to help you rank your early season locations for any given season, and how your approach to hunting differs out of state compared to hunting a highly pressured state like Michigan. And speaking of pressure, that's going to be a good jumping off point to pick up the discussion today. And one of the things that I've heard varying opinions on is if a guy spooks a buck out of an area, that means it is or is not over for the season. So I'd like your opinion and I'd like to know if you've ever spooked a buck out of an area and then killed it shortly after, let's say within the next two to three weeks. Has that ever happened to you? No, not in Michigan. I, I have out of state, but not in Michigan, never. Okay, and then quick follow-up question here. 
how much pressure do you think on average, and again, I'm sure this varies by state, do you think it takes to push a, a mature buck out of an area that you're hunting? Uh, is that one time in there, twice, more? And does that answer change if that buck uh, wins you or, or doesn't win you? That all depends on your entry and exit routes and your scent control. I think if you hunt a spot once or twice and you got a bad scent control where you're leaving odor from going in, you're leaving odor going up the tree, um, you're leaving odor when you're exiting, you're leaving your some form of scent ribbon. You know, if that buck goes through there an hour after dark, he's going to smell that and he's going to know that it's had some human activity there. And if it's a destination point, he's, he's definitely going to avoid it during daylight hours. So you may not spook him out of the area, but it, the likelihood that you're going to spook him where he doesn't visit that location during daylight hours is extremely high. Okay, and then one more follow-up on this topic would be, let's say you're in one of your sets and it's the pre-rut, for example. So full-on breeding hasn't occurred yet and you've seen a buck, but he didn't come in range for whatever reason. How long until you would hunt that location again, if you would hunt it at all? Oh, yeah, I would I would go in the very next day. Um, and if there were a tree where I saw him, let's say he was 50 yards away and he was going down another runway, and I've done this before, uh, and he was going down a different runway, I'd go in with my freelance gear and I'd prep a tree and hunt a different tree because pre-rut, they're pretty routine unless they've actually found an early ester stow. Their, their uh, routes are relatively routine. Yeah, and that's what I was asking. Let's say it's uh, peak of the rut, then that information's probably not as reliable, correct? Peak of the rut is just a strange time to hunt, especially especially here, like in a Michigan or PA or, you know, a really heavily pressured state because there's so few mature bucks that, you know, a hunter like myself or maybe you or a lot of other guys would want to shoot. There's so few three-and-a-half-year-old or older bucks that they're typically with a hot doe. So if if I see a buck, a mature buck, and he's not with a hot doe, and it's during the peak rut, the odds of him being with a hot doe the next by the next day are extremely high because there's so many does, and he has no breeding competition per se because there's just no other bucks that can compete with him. As soon as he crosses a doe's a hot doe's track, even if she's with another buck, he'll just take her over. So um, I would still hunt there the next day, but I would not have any high expectations of an opportunity because that doe, that buck would probably be with a hot doe because there's so many does coming into heat in that two-week time frame because the buck or the mature buck to mature breeding doe ratio here is probably 15 to 1, 15 or 20 breeding does to one three-and-a-half or older buck, if, if not higher. And he would just steal steal the doe from whatever buck she would be with. So I would definitely hunt the same spot again, but the likelihood of seeing him again would be very, very nil. Uh, but during pre-rut, I think the likelihood would be very high. And when I, when I mentioned that I had done that before, I shot a really nice buck. I was actually hunting in a spot, and I, I was down kind of in a saddle, and I saw a buck eh, probably an hour before dark going up at top of this ridge there was an oak ridge and he was right on the edge of the oak ridge and this was a long time ago this was 30 years ago and uh, so the next day i rattled and tried to bring him over to me did a rattle sequence and and he looked but he didn't come he just kept going and so the next day i just 
took my stuff with me, my steps, and I just prepped a tree up there where he was. He was actually on a runway, and I just sat on that runway, and he came right down that runway at almost the exact same time, and I shot him. Because pre-rut, the does haven't came in, most of the does haven't came into estrus yet, so they're following a pretty regimented routine, you know, looking for those early estrus does, trying to cross tracks of a doe that moved through the area. Yeah, let me ask you one more follow-up question, kind of on this topic. Would you say that that kind of pre-rut period, if you do see a buck that you're interested in shooting, maybe that's the best time to get one on a pattern then of any part of the season? Oh, without question. 100%. In in Michigan, yes. I would say if you were in an Iowa, a Kansas, or a Ohio, because they have December openers for gun season, I would say post-rut, which would be late November around Thanksgiving, would be just as ideal as pre-rut. Because at that point in time, most of the does have been bred by the post-rut by by the 23rd, 25th of November. Most of the does have been bred. So now those big, dominant, mature bucks, they physically have to get up off their butt and go search for those late estrus does, just like they had to search for the early estrus does during pre-rut. So pre-rut and post-rut, when you're in states with December gun seasons, are pretty similar. And I actually think post-rut's a little bit better because post-rut, the bucks are pretty wore out. Their testosterone levels are still extremely high, but they're wore out because they've been breeding for two and a half weeks pretty much constantly. They've lost a lot of body weight. They're drained. And when they move, they're not as cautious as they are during pre-rut. Pre-rut, they're still a little bit on edge because they're just coming into that starting to move during daylight time frame. Post-rut in those states, Ohio, Iowa, and Kansas, because they have December gun openers, are really, really good. Uh, the only downside is there's so many mature bucks in those states that probably 50% of the mature bucks you see are going to have busted antlers because they've been fighting during the rut. Right. A lot less just taking a doe over and a lot more fighting for it in those type of states. Yes. Well, let's shift gears, John. I think it's probably safe to say, and we'll get your opinion on this, that one of the things you're most well-known for is is hunting over primary scrape areas. So the first thing I'd like to ask is, in your opinion, your observations over the years, the first part of this question is, what do you think a primary scrape area, what what purpose does that serve to white-tailed deer, uh, bucks and does? Primary scrape areas are always, 100% of the time, made where there is a lot of doe activity. So primary scrape areas are typically going to be at preferred feeding locations. That's where you, that's why you see scrapes around crop fields. Uh, you're going to see them at apple trees. You're going to see them at oak trees. Uh, if you're in states where you got persimmons or where hickory or chestnuts are primary food sources, you're going to see them around them if they got low-hanging branches. And, and you know, there's just some isolated food sources where they're not all over the place where they're having to come to one or two specific locations. So primary scrape areas are always where there's doe activity and they're just laying down their markers. And I've seen scrapes at primary scrape areas opened as early as August 23rd is probably the earliest I've ever seen one open. And that was in a, uh, there was like three apple trees. And I was actually back, it was back in 2005 when I was doing my uh, videos, my DVDs, uh, the instructional DVD videos. But primary scrape areas, it doesn't get any better than that. But just finding a primary scrape area and hunting a primary scrape area 
without it having the adequate security cover requirements is a waste of your time. So if you find three or four scrapes along the edge of a crop field, you know, during postseason from the previous fall, and you set up a location there, and then that crop field is in beans or hay or something short, and and you hunt it, if you're in a pressured state, you're not going to see, even though even if the scrapes are active, you're not going to see a mature buck because he's not going to be exposed to that open crop field. He probably is working the scrapes, but he's doing it in the security of darkness. So for me to hunt a primary scrape, it has to have perimeter security cover around it so they have a quick exit, and it has to have the adequate transition security cover to it from a known bedding area. I don't know if I mentioned this on the previous podcast we did, but if you got a primary scrape area, let's say it's on the edge of a crop field, which they're pretty common on the edge of crop fields in ag areas, where you'll find two or three scrapes in a very short, small area. And let's say you set a tree up. There's a tree within shooting distance of those scrapes. Okay, let's say to the east of those scrapes, you've got 200 yards of open timber with no understory, no security cover underneath the canopy of the trees whatsoever. It's just open woods. And then to the east of that woods, you've got a really dense, heavy security cover bedding area, swamp or whatever it may be. Okay, now let's say that crop field is in standing corn during pre-rut. If a buck is bedded in the bedding area, he is not going to leave that bedding area during daylight hours and move through 200 yards of vulnerable open timber to work those scrapes in the daytime. He's just not going to do it. He may be bedded in the corn and step out of the corn because he's got the security cover of the corn right there. That's where he's at physically bedding and work those scrapes because he's going to be, you know, two, three yards outside the edge of the cornfield, work the scrapes and then go back in the corn. But he's not going to come through that open timber. So if it's in standing corn, you got a 50-50 chance of a buck coming out of corn and working the scrapes. But if it's in a short crop field, there's no way you're going to have day, daytime activity at a primary scrape area without the security cover. So if you did have adequate security cover from the bedding area through the timber, let's say you had a bunch of autumn olive where they could move through there, you know, pretty secure, move down the edge of it or through it. Uh, yeah, there's an excellent chance you'd, you'd they would leave the bedding area and come through that security cover or cattails or whatever it may be and work those scrapes in the in the daytime. Uh, but not if it were going to be in an open field. So see, they're not going to stand where they've got a totally open, exposed crop field to the to one side, where 50% of the scrapes, side of the scrapes are going to be totally exposed. Did that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate first the explanation of, of the the purpose that the scrape serves in the whitetail woods, and two, the specific details to look for to help a guy differentiate whether that's a scrape that he should be or should not be hunting. You know, like you said, uh, standing crops, specifically corn and security cover surrounding it. So the, the follow-on question I had to that is when we're discussing scrapes, you've probably hunted over scrapes as much or more than, than any hunter that I know of. Have you observed any unique behavior at scrapes that, that might be noteworthy or, or something that you took away that was kind of a light bulb moment? Yeah, I have. And the, the really interesting stuff I've seen at scrapes was actually from does. But keep in mind, when I say security cover, I, I, I'm very serious about that. A lot of people will see a scrape area 
primary scrape area where there's multiple scrapes in a 10, 15 yard zone. There'll be two or three, maybe four scrapes or else there's just one big scrape and it's three inches deep and it's as big as a truck hood. That, that could be a primary scrape area as well, even though it's just one scrape. But as far as strange activity on several occasions, I can think of three off the top of my head where I have had during late pre-rut, just right on the cusp of peak rut, like November 5th, 6th, somewhere in there, I've had matriarch does come in by themselves. You know, so obviously they've dumped their fawns, so they're close to or they are physically in heat. And I've had them come in to a primary scrape area and work the licking branches with their preorbital and their saliva and just loiter and have them bed down there for like a half an hour. I mean, they are wanting the dominant buck to come and check that scraper, a buck to come and check the scrape and, and pick them up and, and breed them. They, they want to get bred. And I've also noticed I've seen does where a small buck, a subordinate buck, would come in and there would be a big matriarch doe there, you know, a 150-pound dressed doe probably a six-year-old doe, and she would not let the subordinate buck breed her. You know, she would just keep running around, and anytime he would try and do anything, he, she would kick him, you know, like boxing. Matriarch does, it's kind of interesting, because the bigger does, they want to get bred by the dominant bucks if they can. And scrape areas are where you see that that's kind of strange activity. And I've had several times where I've had bucks come in last year in Iowa, or Kansas, I'm sorry, I had two bucks come into a scrape at the same time in the morning at 8.30, and they got in an all-out brawl. And I think I said that on the last podcast. They both had their left beams broke off at the at the base, and the half-rack 10 poked the eye out of the half-rack 8. Yeah, geez. And that happened 17 yards in front of me. That had to be something to see. Oh, my God, I would have shot either one of them if they would have had both sides. And when you go out there, that's one of the downsides of punt post-rut. We were out there post-rut, and that was like November 23rd, and both of those bucks had both of their left both of their left beams were broke off. No, I've seen the same thing. I was in Kansas a little earlier than you last year, but probably started hunting around the 13th or the 14th, and even at that point I, I saw two, probably two- or three-year-old bucks that had a, a beam broke off already. It's it's common. I mean, it's unbelievable how common that is. You just don't see that here because there's there's not two big bucks that can fight each other. Right. So one of the other things we're we're going to shift gears here again, and this has to do with picking out the right tree or the exact tree. And over the years, I've imagined you've become quite adept at that. I'm sure the answer to this question is going to be highly situational, but can you describe to the audience some features or sign you look for in an area that lets you know? that a certain tree is the right tree to be in. And let's assume that it's not the only tree. Let's say there's, you know, 20 available trees you could set up in an area around a location that you want to hunt. How do you pick out the tree without firsthand uh, observations? I always look for the tree that's going to be the most centered. Like if I'm in a hub of activity, let's say I'm in a terrain feature dump where two or three terrain features dump into one little location. I'm always going to look the tree that, look for the tree that's going to give me the most shot opportunities, but the tree also has, it must have the adequate cover. So it, I'm typically, and I just did my last workshop of the year, you know, Saturday and Sunday, and people are blown away at my trees. They're absolutely shocked at how high I get in trees and how just about every tree I have prepped 
is a decent diameter tree, and they almost all have crotches where I'm hunting. That's something that's a big deal to me because getting picked here is so, so easy. I mean, the deer physically look for people in trees. So I want to find a tree that's going to be big enough to hide my body behind is because I'm hunting out of a saddle. I prefer it to have a crotch up in the area where I'm at so I've got extra wood around me. But it also, I, I will also hunt a straight tree if it's a big enough diameter. If it's in a better spot where I'm going to have the most shot opportunities to all of the runway activity, to the most runway activity that I can. And then I'll also try to pull runways within my shooting distance by altering them, by blocking them, and, and then creating a new, new route closer to my tree. And, and another really important thing that a lot of people don't think about when you're picking out a tree, because a lot of I, a lot of the stuff I do is on edges, like edges of rivers. I guess edges of waterways would be probably a good example. And when I was out Saturday, for instance, I've got one, two, three, four trees that we visit that are within 30 yards of a river. You know, they're all about 30 yards off the river. And everybody says, well, why didn't you get in that tree or that tree over there? And almost every time somebody says that, they're looking at a tree that's physically closer to the water because there's almost always a runway skirting the edge of the river, you know, four to five yards off the river. So my shooting distance is 25 yards. That's my comfort shooting distance. So if I would pick a tree, let's say 14 yards off the river, which is going to put that four-yard runway 10 yards from my tree, the four-yard runway off the down the edge of the river. So now I've got that 10-yard shot, but now I've only got 25 yards the other direction on the 180 degrees on the opposite side of the tree. So by moving and going 25 yards from that four-yard runway, okay, are you with me? Yep, I'm following. I'm, I'm picking up an extra... 15 yards of shooting range to the other side of the tree. So by 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 hunting 14 or 15 yards off the river, I'm only shooting 10 yards. Basically, 10 yards is my farthest shot to the river because that runway is four yards off the edge of the river. So I'm actually losing 15 yards of shooting distance on the opposite side of the tree. Whereas if I move 15 yards farther away from the river, now I can still shoot to that runway on the river, but I've picked up another 15 yards in the other direction. Because when bucks are chasing does during pre-rut and during rut, you know, they don't always follow runways. So you want as big a shooting area as possible. And by staying too close to the river, you're negating 15 yards of shooting range. And most people are capable of 30 and 40 yards. So, you know, if, if you were a 40-yard guy and you're 14 yards off the river, you're losing... 25 additional yards on the other side of the tree that you could have shot. You should have been 40 yards off the river instead of 15 because you'd have picked up another 25 yards of shooting distance on the other side of the tree. Oh, 180 degrees the other side of the river. That makes a lot of sense. Let's pose the question this way. So in that scenario, we had adequate number of trees to pick from. Now let's assume we've got a smaller diameter beanpole tree in the hub, like right where you'd want to be. And then 10 to 15 yards away, you have a larger diameter tree with a crotch at the height you normally hunt at. How does that influence your decision in that type of scenario? Which tree do you go for there? 
that would influence it a lot. If it's a bean poultry, like I see on a lot of YouTube guys setting up in, I, I won't hunt those. I, I, you'll just get picked. If I'm on that during the rut when there's no foliage, you'll, I'll just get picked. I mean, it's almost a guarantee. So I would, I would set up, keep in mind, I'm doing all of my stuff during postseason. I'd set up in a tree with a little better security cover, get a little higher possibly. And, you know, I would try and alter some of those runways that were best suited for that skinny tree. Skinny trees, you know, in Kansas, a lot of these other states that don't have much pressure, you can get away with that stuff. But I mean, I can remember hunting in Iowa and Kansas and on public land and I'll see platforms 10 feet off the ground. I can damn near reach up and touch them. Right. There is no way on God's green earth you're going to get a shot of the deer here unless it's a fawn. In a high-pressured state, to summarize, if, if you have a, a tree that's not in the exact area but with better cover, you're going to probably opt for the tree with better cover. As long as I can shoot to the majority of the sign. You know, I may lose a runway or two by not being in the beanpole tree where I'm going to get picked. But, yeah, at least I'll get an opportunity. Just hunting just to hunt and say, wow, I saw a big buck, but he spooked from me. That that doesn't do me any damn good. I want to get the shot. Just seeing deer without getting a shot opportunity is a waste of my time. I appreciate your perspective on that because obviously you've got a lot of experience and, and that's why I'm excited to talk to you. And I think that's the type of stuff that's not always obvious to people. And, and my, I'll include myself in that. Well, I've got these two options and I know the beanpole tree is not great for cover, but the tree with better cover, maybe I lose some runways. And it's interesting to hear your perspective that go with the one with the little better cover and, and give up a runway or two. I, I can't believe when I, when I take these guys through the woods on Saturday and show them like 14 of my tree setups, I, I can't believe how many people say, I can't believe you hunt that high, or I can't believe you're in that big a tree. And, you know, and one, this one guy said, I one notice one very consistent thing about your trees. You're up at least 25 feet in almost all of them. And you, all of them have a crotch and they're all pretty big diameter. And I said, that's because I like to get shots. When a deer comes through, I like getting a shot. I don't like to get picked. And, you know, have does or whatever else pick me prior to something coming through and spooking and making noise and spooking everything before it comes. Hunting without getting a shot's a waste a waste of my time. So the tree is a very, very important aspect of, of hunting, in my opinion. I agree, and, and hence the question. So appreciate the feedback there. Well, I want to get into probably what you're most well-known for now, which would be rut tactics. And the first question would be at what point in the season and if you could give a specific date and if that maybe if that changes if you're in a different state uh, elaborate on that too but at what point do you shift in to really focusing on rut tactics uh, what date of the season if it starts getting really cold or if we get a rain or something uh, I might start getting serious around October 20th depending on the weather but typically it's October 25th is when I start getting serious but I, I have seen some good deer. I, I did shoot a good deer a couple years back. On, I think it was October 20th. And um, it was a decent buck with a doe. So, uh, but it was weather. I mean, weather's got a lot to do with it. And, you know, a mature buck's more apt to even, you know, when he's thinking about breaking that nocturnal time frame, his testosterone's rising. He's much more apt to get up and move on a drizzly, rainy day. Uh, than he is on a nice sunny bluebird day where it's quiet and he's every time he takes a step he's making noise with the crunchy leaves. So weather weather has something to do with it as well. And obviously cold cold weather spurs activity. I can remember my son Chris. He went to Iowa 
and it was 80 degrees for three days. And he was hunting in this spot that I had permission. And he never saw a buck in three days. And I, he called me, he was calling me at night. And I was like, I couldn't even believe it. I can't believe you could hunt this spot without seeing a buck. And the next day it got down to 35 degrees. It was 35 degrees in the morning. And he saw 11 bucks that day. Oh, wow. So the, the weather made all the difference in the world. And I knew a lot of guys. I have a lot of friends that go out of state from Michigan because I have a lot of friends that don't even hunt in Michigan anymore. All they do is go out of state to two or three states. And I can remember quite a few guys because that was a, like late October, early November where it was really, really warm and they didn't kill anything. They didn't see much out of state when they were there in that warm weather. Warm weather definitely stifles activity, even even during free run. Yeah, especially that type of year. That's uh, I think that's the out-of-state travelers when you got limited time or vacation and you pick your week and then you see your forecast is 70 degrees or something that's pretty pretty discouraging yeah and that's one cool thing that i i do and uh there's been several years where i've just taken off in december like in ohio and illinois on public land and i've just taken off in december after i see that they've gotten a fresh snow i'm talking mid to late december and uh, went down and done very, very well, just spur of the moment, just took off because I knew they got a fresh snow. I'd be looking at sign that was, you know, made within the last 24 hours when I got there. So, and then by that time of year, you know, everything's pretty much a bedding to feeding routine and those hunts worked out extremely well. But I, I was in a position where I could just take off at the moment. I wanted to circle back because you mentioned uh, October 20th and 25th, and I'm sure you haven't listened to every episode of my podcast, but I had a research biologist from Penn State on. His name's Dwayne Diefenbach, and he's actually in charge of their GPS collar study. And that almost those exact dates were when they noticed a spike in, in activity for movement and daytime movement specifically. And, and in their study, their bucks were at least two and a half years old when they were collared. So, you know, getting to the point, this is in Pennsylvania on state game land. So this isn't like a preserve or you know, a, a low pressure state. So it's pretty interesting that your first hand in the field experience corresponds almost exactly with those GPS studies. Kind of an interesting observation there. Well, when you've done it for 50 years, you'd notice the trend. Right. <laughs> right. And, and you keep, you also have to keep in mind, Pennsylvania and Michigan are very, very similar states and like West Virginia, New York. They're states that have a lot of deer. Michigan has a ton of deer. I mean, if somebody wants to kill a deer, Michigan's as good a state as you can come to to kill a deer. Uh, we just don't have much for mature bucks. But because we've got so dang many does, you know, a lot of times the fawns, we'll have fawns that get born early and they'll come into estrus in December. And we also have does that drop fawns early and they may come into estrus, you know, in mid to late October. So, and does, a lot of does come in early. I'm not going to say a lot, but when you've got a 15 to one, you know, mature doe to three and a half year old buck ratio or higher, some areas it may be 20 or 30 to one, there's going to be, there's always going to be a doe or two that's going to come in early and there's always going to be a doe or two that come in late. The majority of them are going to come in in the same two and a half weeks, but there's always going to be early and late. And um, I can remember driving down a highway uh, US 27 by Lansing going to work and uh, 
there was two two good bucks. They were when I say good, they were probably 115 inches, which were three year olds at least, and they were chasing a doe. And it was the 15th of October, and she was definitely in heat. There is no way in God's green earth two three and a half year old bucks would be chasing a doe if she was not in heat in Michigan. Um, I mean, I see little bucks chasing does, you know, four points and six points and, you know, I'll see them sometimes even in early October, but that's like young boys in middle school or something. They're, they don't know what to do with a girl and, you know, right. <laughs> so they're, they're just, they're just chasing girls. They, the, even though they're not in heat, they're just doing the boy thing. Yeah. That, that was one of the other interesting things I talked about with Duane is they did autopsies or necropsy, whatever you want to call it, where, road killed deer that were pregnant does they they backdate them to the conception date and peak breeding in pennsylvania he said was around november 12th november 13th but it's a bell curve so you've got some that are weeks earlier like you mentioned you you know it's rare but it it can occur where in the middle of october you have a doe in heat and the same thing where you have breeding that goes on into december you know that's the minority but it is a bell curve and that does occur yeah absolutely and i i think a lot of early fawns uh, early doe funds actually come into heat their first year in December. I know John Ozaga, who's a biologist, uh, he used to run Kuzno Ranch up in the Upper Peninsula, which is an enclosure. And I, I don't usually put a lot of credibility to enclosure studies because they don't replicate anything that's hunted because those deer don't get hunted and they've got an equally balanced, you know, ratio of mature does and four-year-old, five and a half and six and a half-year-old does to four or five and a half and six and a half-year-old bucks. But this was more about actual, he's in an area where there's a lot of does and a lot of doe fawns. He said they get born early in April. You know, they'll come into heat in December and sometimes even into January. So they'll come into they'll come into heat during their first fall. Yeah, so that's something to keep in mind that, uh, you know, a reason to get out after after the gun season, which in Michigan, sometimes that can be a discouraging prospect with all the pressure. But if it's cold out and that your specific hunting area, the pressure dies off, not much muzzleloader season. I've actually seen pretty good deer movement in the second half of December under the right conditions. Well, one of the other things that you're really well known for, John, is all day sits. So you mentioned you start hunting rut style tactics around October 20th, 25th. When do you start sitting all day, or what kind of conditions will you sit all day in? November. Usually, I don't. I won't sit all day until at least October twenty eighth to November first. Halloween. Halloween would be about the first day, probably. And it would. And again, if I'm going to sit all day, it's going to depend on the weather. I'm not going to sit all day on a warm day, on a hot, sunny day. I want to sit all day when it's a little bit chillier, maybe during a drizzle rain. And keep in mind, it's just like hunting a primary scrape area. You don't sit all day just to sit all day. If you're not in the right type of location for a midday movement, there's no reason to be there. So you got to have the security cover. Typically, when I'm sitting all day, it's going to be either in the interior of a bedding area or it's going to be in transition security cover from one bedding area to another bedding area. So what mature bucks will typically do during pre-rut they'll bed down before daylight they'll get up at 10 30 11 o'clock everything else is bedded and they will just send check perimeters of the bedding areas and they can tell any doe that went in there between daylight and when they're doing the scent checking you know if they were close to or in heat they'll pick up that order and then they'll take up chase 
And if they search the perimeter of one bedding area and there's nothing there, then they'll take the best security cover available to another bedding area within their core area and scent check that. And once they've checked all of the secure areas where they don't have to be vulnerable moving during daylight hours, uh, then they'll just bed down and wait till after dark. So I think I mentioned that on the last podcast, but I'll mention it again because it's really important. Of the 31 bucks I have in the Michigan record book with my bow, 20 of them were shot between November 1st and November 14th. And of those 20, seven were shot between 11 o'clock and three o'clock in the afternoon. So 35% of those 20 bucks were shot in the middle of the day, while less than 8% of my time spent on stand was during midday. So most of the time I'm hunting mornings or evenings. You know, I'm not hunting every day all the time. Sure. So less than 8% of my time on stand was during midday, yet 35% of the bucks I shot during that time frame were shot in the middle of the day. Yeah, and I know so many people, and I'm sure you do too, that don't hunt that period of the day at all, even in November. Oh, without a doubt, yep. Hardly, a lot of people talk about it, but they don't do it because it's hard. It's very hard. It's very draining on your head. <laughs> yeah. Because it's boring. Right. I mean, you don't you don't see much activity between 10 and 4. And, uh, you know, if the sun's out, you know, you, you know, when it's cold and even if the sun's out, it just beats on you and it, it, it wears you down. I'm, I've hunted as the most I've ever done is three days in a row, you know, all day, three all day sits in a row. And I, I don't, I'm getting kind of older and I don't hunt as much all day sits as I used to. I'm probably down to about three a season now. I probably used to do six or seven, but I, I still do it and I, I, I love it. And, you know, the saddle makes it all also awesome because it's so damn comfortable. I've done some all day hunts and I do a few every season. My experience has been, I'd be interested to hear yours, is that when you do see a deer that time of day, let's say 10.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., it's almost always a buck. Like, you hardly ever see a doe. It's almost always a buck that time of day. Absolutely. The only time you see a doe is if a buck pushed her. Yeah. Is if a buck physically pushed her. Or if you're in a bedding area, because you got to be in there an hour and a half before daylight, and you got to leave a half hour after dark. you got to commit. you got to commit to being in there before they come in in the morning, and you got to commit to leaving after they've left the bedding area in the afternoon. But a lot of times when you're in a bedding area, you'll have does come in with their fawns or whatever and bed where they're within visual sight of you. So there's a there's an excellent chance if that if you do have some bed within sight of you because the foliage is down, you got a pretty good visual. You'll see them get up in the middle of the day and maybe browse within a 20 yard area, you know, eat some leaves and some grasses and then bed back down. But as far as just transitioning from A to B, those yeah, that you just don't see that activity. It's almost 90% buck activity. And when they do move during the middle of the day, it's not like when they move in the morning or evening. They move with a purpose. They move very solidly, and they're not really paying a lot of attention. It's not like when they move in the morning or evening when they take a step and they wait for a reaction because they're they're like walking on eggshells because I would guess it's because they know in the mornings and evenings they're more vulnerable because of hunters. You know, when you get to three and a half, four and a half year old as a buck, you know when the vulnerable times of day are because <laughs> you've lived through it. 
I wonder if that's part of the reason that so many people don't hunt that time of day because a lot of people, whether they admit it or not, in my opinion, just want to see deer and you don't see a lot of deer, but that is one of the best times and, and you've proven it and I've seen it with my own eyes to see a good buck and it's not something that you'd ex- expect if you haven't experienced it and it happens I think in such a limited window of the deer season right because let's say up to October 20th and then let's say after December 1st sitting all day doesn't yield you much results but those two or three weeks where the ruts are really cranking that is one of the best times and, and it's such a small window where that occurs that I think a lot of people just don't give it the time or don't want to sit all day whatever the case is. Yeah, sitting all day prior to pre-ruts a waste of time. The only the only time if you're in a if you were in a bedding area and there was hardly any water in the in the whole area where you're hunting, let's say for half a mile in any direction, there's no water, no rivers. You're not in a swamp, but you're in just a dense brushy bedding area, and you have a little water hole by your tree. Um, you know, you got the only water for a, quite a distance. I could see hunting all day in a spot like that on a hot day because deer will have to, deer, you will see deer activity during the middle of the day coming in and drinking water as long as it has the adequate security cover requirements, again, for that daytime movement. And I've seen that. I've never killed a big buck at water like that, but I have actually created those watertight spots and had lots of deer activity, lots of buck activity, two-year-olds. Never killed a three-year-old, but I know a couple of guys that have actually bought those little kitty swimming pools and buried them in the ground, kept them full of water because they're in an area where there's no water for, you know, a quarter to a half a mile in any direction. And I know guys that have shot bucks that way. I've seen bucks that way. I've never seen one I personally would shoot, but I've seen a lot of deer activity at isolated water holes where there's every the rest of the area was devoid of water that's something i'm definitely going to keep in mind because we're having already this year we're having an exceptionally dry year in montana and the way it's been going it doesn't look to get any better so it could be a good year to, to hunt water while we're on the rut and scrapes one of the other questions i wanted to ask you is do your tactics evolve during the rut and for example are you doing anything differently or hunting different areas let's say october 31st than you would be November 7th, the 15th, or the 24th. Do your tactics evolve through that part of the season, or are you pretty well committed to, to hunting scrapes and bedding areas that time of year? Well, when it when it gets into November, I, I like to be in the interiors of bedding areas because that's where, that's where most of the buck traffic is, and especially when it gets into the actual peak rut, you know, after the 5th. Because the bedding areas, the dominant bucks, they're going to push the does, the hot does that they're breeding. They want to breed in security cover. So they're going to physically push them and corral them into these bedding areas. And when they're in there all day, they move around. You know, the buck will breed a doe and then she'll bed down and he'll bed 10 or 15 yards downwind of her, keeping an eye on her. And, and maybe in a half an hour, he'll get up and go over and nudge her and She'll get up and run 40 or 50 yards. They'll do the little chase game, and then he'll breed her, and she'll bed back down. So they move around in the bedding areas. You know, people that don't hunt interiors of bedding areas and keep them as sanctuary areas, if they don't own a lot of property and they got a small bedding area, I think that's really stupid, to be perfectly honest with you. Obviously, the TV guys can do that because they have zero competition. They big, big bedding areas, big chunks of property. They can keep 
places as sanctuary areas. But a normal guy that doesn't have a whole lot of property and has got a five or ten acre bedding area, if he's not out in the interior of that in uh, pre-rut and into the rut, I think he's crazy. And all unless unless there's several guys hunting it and they all have equal authority, because then if one guy hunts it, then the other guys are going to want to hunt it too, and then they're going to screw it up. But if you got one guy and he's got a excellent scent control regimen he's going to commit to being in there an hour and a half before daylight and set up and he's going to commit to sitting all day and leaving a half an hour after dark he's going to kill some deer in the bedding area over time definitely going to happen and and when i say hunting in a bedding area i'm talking two or three times a season max two or three times a season max but you want to you want to go in and you know you want to find those areas during postseason when all the foliage is down you know, spooking deer out of there is totally irrelevant that time of year. Uh, prep your locations. Once you get into a bedding area, a lot of times you'll find an oak tree. You'll find a red oak or you'll find a white oak or you'll find some briar patches, which deer love eating briar leaves. So you'll find some preferred food sources even back in the bedding areas or a little opening. You might find a little opening and it's got a, several runways going through it because it's a path of least resistance. And they're in a secure area, so they want the path of least resistance. There's always places, once you get into a bedding area, that are going to have more traffic than others. So those are what you want to scout for. Prep those, you know, this time of year and then totally leave them alone. Don't even go in there. The next time you go in there, you should have your bow in your hand, walking in there two hours before daylight and sitting all day. You will kill deer that way during the rut. That's your 100% best odds of killing deer during the rut. During pre-rut, your best odds are hunting scrape areas around perimeters of bedding areas or transition security cover between bedding areas and even in bedding areas. I mean, if you don't have any other decent places in bedding areas during pre-rut, still good too because they're still scent checking. I'd agree with you 100% that hunting in a bedding area that time of year, like you said, the November 5th, November 10th range, if you do it intelligently, that's probably your best two or three hunts of the entire season. You know, if the conditions are favorable, the weather's good and everything. So, yep. yeah, I think yep. I'd agree with you that the sanctuary idea is great, but you also have to know when to, to get aggressive and get in there. And I, I agree 100%. You're, you're really missing out if you don't do that. All my public land, all of my public land spots are in bedding areas. Well, that should tell all the listeners something right there. And I have a couple spots where... There's actually apple trees in the bedding area on public land and oaks and or oaks and white, you know, apple trees or oaks back in the bedding areas where I've had to cross rivers or whatever to access them. And you also, when you, when you're hunting in a bedding area, if, if you're on private, you want to make sure you have at least four, if not five shooting lanes, like spokes on a tire, because deer can come from any damn direction. You know, just, just don't count on the runways being the only place they're going to be. Because when they're chasing does and breeding does in a bedding area, there's no rhyme or reason, and runways a lot of times are not what they use. So you want to make sure you have spoked shots all the way around your tree, and you you better have a good scent control because 50% of the deer on average will be downwind of you. Well, speaking of downwind, talking about scrapes, and I want to talk about lockdown specifically. So there's some old wives' tales or urban legend, and I want to get your input on this that certain does, to the extent that you can tell one doe apart from the other, come into estrus on approximately the same date every year. 
do you ever try to capitalize that? So let's say you're in a certain one of your locations, let's say November 9th, and you see a doe in estrus. Are you going to hunt that exact same area? Um, let's assume the conditions are the same. November 9th the next year, why or why not? I don't. I do believe that's true, but I do not try to capitalize on that. I don't have any place close to my house. So I just go when I have the time. My closest place is 35 minutes, and the closest place after that is two and a half hours from my home. So there's a lot of things I'm not able to do. You know, I I used to do mock scrapes when I had some spots close to my house to hunt. I don't do mock scrapes, even though I do believe in them. And there's just things I can't do, like what you're talking about. I've read some studies by some pretty good people that I trust, and, you know, Studies and enclosures have nothing. When you're studying does coming into heat the same time every year, the same the same deer, that has nothing to do with hunting pressure. So you know those studies are, are pretty consistent, and I definitely believe does come come in heat within the same couple days every year. But do I have I taken advantage of that? No, I have not. Okay, no, that's fair enough. But I do believe in it. The reason I was asking is specifically for out-of-state hunts, and I'm thinking of Kansas specifically, where the area I hunt at least has, compared to Michigan especially, relatively low numbers, and the doe groups are smaller. You might only have two or three does in a group. So if you know that there's a certain doe group and a bedding area that you've already identified from previous seasons and, and you had good activity, I guess that's the reason I asked the question is, that's something you're looking to take advantage of on the following year to get in that same area in that same time frame? sounds like you you believe it but no you you don't do that specifically yeah and when we go when we go to kansas we we don't really have any spots in any bedding areas because they're the deer all where we're at anyway because kansas varies from east to west everything where we're at is plains plains and it's pretty arid country they grow some milo and some green fields corn doesn't grow very well there it's too arid Uh, but there's very there isn't any really defined bedding areas you've got these draws that run through the countryside and there's hemp in them and there's plum brush and the plum brush you can't i mean they bed in the plum brush but they're that's not a a bedding area because they're they're just small patches of really heavy brush with no trees in them i mean i don't know if you know what i'm talking about by plum brush yeah i know exactly the plant you're talking about that stuff's nasty to try to walk through yeah that's you know, they bed in plum brush, you find a patch of plum brush, odds are there's going to be deer bedded in it. But typically the deer just transition down through the draws and bed in the draws wherever. So they don't, where we're at anyway in Kansas, there isn't really any defined bedding areas. They just bed wherever because those draws are all tall weeds and, you know, they can bed any dang place in there. And they're pretty narrow. They just run for miles and miles and miles. And then one more question here on scrapes, and I think maybe you already answered part of this, but I want to hear it anyways. So my experience has been with scrapes during peak breeding, again, let's say November 10th to the 19th, that those scrapes almost inevitably go cold as far as actual scraping activity. So I heard you mention that you kind of shift away from scrapes from the pre-rut into the interiors of bedding areas during the peak rut. So is is that true? Are you are you getting away from scrapes during that time of year? It's one hundred percent true. Yeah, because the do- the all the uh, decent bucks are doed up. They have no reason to work scrapes. 
I mean, and when I say good bucks, you know, up here where I'm at, there could be two or three two and a half year olds, and they're the best bucks in the area. Or maybe there's one three and a half year old because there's so dang many does, they're almost always with a hot doe for probably two to two and a half weeks. So they have no reason to go to scrapes, primary scrape areas, because they're at doe destination locations, heavy doe traffic areas. That's why they're there. They go there when they are looking and searching for their next estrus doe. So I have definitely hunted scrape areas during the actual peak rut. And there is always a chance that a buck, once he's done breeding a doe, will come to a scrape area in search of his next one. But it definitely is not as common as during pre-rut when they hit them, when they're searching those scrape areas on a very regular basis. You're just trying to hope it's during daylight hours. They're much, much more routine during pre-rut because there's so few does, if any, that are in heat. Once they actually come into heat, they abandon the scrapes. The only time they work a scrape is if, if they're between does and they happen to go to a scrape area trying to look for their next doe. So scrape areas definitely lose their luster after the 5th of November for me. Okay, and that's was going to be the follow-up question. If you had to put dates on it, let's just use Michigan. So you said you would start hunting scrapes around the 20th, 25th. I believe you just said around the 5th you would stop, and then I assume that's when you transition to the bedding areas. Um, yep. I know you're out of state during Michigan's gun season, but let's say Kansas, and I know you go there a week of Thanksgiving. Do you ever, around that point where you said the bucks are getting real ragged and run down and they aren't doed up, do you transition back to scrape areas or do you stay in bedding areas there that last week in November? Absolutely. I mean, it's almost like a flipping a switch out there. We will still hunt because there are no bedding areas where we're at. It's just draws. So we're hunting in the draws. But it's just so interesting out there because when we get out there on the 6th, we leave the 16th, we get there the 17th in the morning, usually around 8 a.m. We spend the first day and a half scouting. So we don't physically hunt until the 19th in the afternoon because we spend a day and a half scouting and prepping locations. And, and we typically are set up at a scrape area and we will typically have cameras on the scrape areas. And we'll check the cameras every morning after we get done hunting. And we'll see two and a half, and once in a while, a three and a half year old buck. And a three and a half year old out there is going to be a 140. Two and a halfs are going to be at 115 to 125, 130-ish, somewhere in there, on average, generally speaking. And uh, But once it gets about November 23rd, the scrapes start getting more active, and we start seeing the bigger bucks. The does, most of the does are bred, and now those big bucks have to go out and work and check those primary scrape areas where there's heavy doe traffic. So the, it, it's just like, it's almost like a switch on November 22nd, 23rd. And it's the same thing in Michigan. Mich- Michigan, PA, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, Missouri, our rut phases are all relatively similar within a few days of each other, uh, all up through the Northeast. You know, all of those states, pre-rut starts, you know, late October, and then the majority of the does start physically coming into heat November 5th and November 7th, and then most of the does are pretty much bred 
you know, by the 22nd, 23rd, 24th of November. That whole mid upper Midwest and Northeast, the rut phases are all almost identical date-wise. Just to summarize for the listeners, so your, your strategy would be, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, let's say mid to late October through November 5th, uh, primary scrape areas, then you're going to transition to the inside of bedding areas, and then somewhere around uh, 20th, 22nd, you're going to transition back to hunting scrape areas. Is that accurate? Yeah, but that'd be in a different state. Because obviously in Michigan, once gun season starts in Michigan, bow hunting is almost worthless for the rest of the season. If <laughs> you're trying to kill a big buck, you're, it's almost a waste of time. In 53 years, I've killed two decent bucks in December in Michigan. It's almost a waste of my time. But I still love it because I love hunting in cold, snowy weather. That's when I fill my freezer with those. But usually, if Michigan did not have a gun season, yeah, November November 22nd, 23rd would be when that activity at those scrapes would start to pick up. And keep in mind, when I'm saying primary scrape areas, you know, a lot of times primary scrape areas, are it's very common for them to be at oak trees and apple trees. Very, very common. So, so when I'm hunting primary scrape areas in late October and early November during pre-ride, a lot of times those are at apple trees that are still dropping apples. So it's very important, and I think we discussed that a little bit on the last podcast, know your apple trees, which trees are dropping into the rut phases and which ones are going to be dropped and totally consumed by the 15th of October, you know, summer apples. So a lot of my scrape area hunting during pre-rut is at mast or or fruit trees. But again, they always, 100%, always have to have the adequate security cover requirements for daytime activity. No, that's a good reminder on the apples, and it goes back to being organized and, and taking notes and paying attention to those details that can make the difference between occasional success and consistent success. Yeah. Well, John, you've killed a ton of mature bucks. So I want to shift gears here. This is a different topic. First question would be, did you ever suffer from buck fever? If so, how did you ever overcome it? And if you didn't, what tips would you give to someone that is suffering from buck fever? I think people that live in areas where there's deer (laughs) are less apt to have buck fever than people that live in big cities that only get to hunt a couple of times during the course of a season. Did I used to get buck fever? Absolutely. Do I still get excited? Absolutely. I'm sitting here looking at three years. I have not shot a buck. And I don't know how I'm going to react when I get a shot at a good buck this fall. I'm sure I'm going to get one this year. I just can't, I can't fathom four years in a row without killing one. Right. But I, I don't know how I'm going to respond to that because I'm getting older and I don't know. I hope I don't get buck fever, but you, you never know. Uh, how would I, I have had target panic extremely bad. I shot competitively back in the seventies and me and my team won every year we shot. The last year I shot, I got target panic really, really bad. And to this day, I cannot shoot at a dot. So when I practice, all my practicing is done off the roof of my house, but I'm shooting at deer silhouettes without spots on them. So if you put a target with the red, yellow, you know, yellow spot in the center and orange, red, whatever the colors are. I I can't hold a pin on a dot. Okay. I, I got target panic and I've never really gotten over it, but I started just practicing at silhouette and that's actually helped me. It's helped me because I'm shooting at just a body, 
of a dinner instead of where there's supposed to be the heart and the lungs, you know, I, I put my pin on the deer accordingly. So when I'm practicing, I'm replicating basically shooting at the side of a deer, which I think has helped me. I get, I still get excited. I wouldn't say I get, I don't get buck fever, but I definitely get excited. If I quit getting excited, I'd probably quit hunting. Yeah. First of all, appreciate your honesty on that. And the reason I ask is because I, I think at some point, almost everybody that bow hunts has some degree of buck fever, whether they're willing to admit it or not. And one of the things that helped me was just experience getting more deer in front of you, getting more shots. But but another thing that helped me, and I'm curious if you do this, is if you have a, a mental checklist. So let's say once you decide a buck is a shooter, and in bow hunting, I know a lot of times that means you only got 10 seconds or 40 seconds. It's not like rifle hunting where you got five minutes to think about it. What goes through your mind and, and what do you do to prepare yourself to shoot at an animal? That, that's an interesting question because I've had some really interesting moments at full draw <laughs> in the, in my years. Sure. Elaborate. I hunted with this guy in Kansas years ago and uh, he shot the very first morning after I, I prepped all the locations and his, in his location, he shot a 12 point with about a 22 inch inside spread and it scored 105 inches. It was so wide. He didn't even look at the points. The points were like four inches tall. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was super wide, really thin, thin antlered. And he shot this thing and it ran like 50 yards and tipped over. So he's standing there. I mean, he's up in the tree and he's, it was pretty early. So he just stayed in the tree and he had a 160 incher 10 point. This guy, he's killed quite a few deer. So when he says 160, I know it's pretty close to 160. He's, he had a 10 point come in. He had to say, and one thing he said is that it had really white antlers and it went over to that dead 12 point and it actually, tried to fight with him while he's dead on the ground. And it, he did that for, he said, probably 15 seconds, and then he just kind of trotted off. So I hunted in that tree, and he was hunting out of a tree stand. I got about eight feet above his stand in my saddle the next morning. I was going to see if I could shoot that 12-point, or that 10-point, I'm sorry. And I saw this buck coming about 60 yards away. It was on the other side of this little creek. and all I noticed is that a big frame and white antlers, just really bone white antlers. And so I, I did a rattle sequence and he turned and he came and there was brush between him and me, but I could see down so I could see him, but there was brush between. So he had to commit to coming to me because he couldn't physically see if there would have been two bucks sparring there. He couldn't have physically seen them. Okay. Cause a lot of times if they can see under your tree and you don't have a decoy, uh, they're not going to commit to coming in because there's no visual. Right. So anyway, he came in, but as soon as I saw his antlers, I committed to it. I committed to if that deer comes in close enough for a shot, I'm going to shoot him. And he came in at about, I don't know, I think it was eight yards. I shot him at eight yards. And he ran, fell. When I went over and found him, I was so bummed because it was bone white rack and it had nine points and it had, it was just busted to five points were broke off it. So it would have been a monster, but it only had nine points and they were busted and the front of the beam was broke off. So we both shot deer. We shouldn't have shot, but I got that deer mounted 
And I've had more comments on that deer. I shouldn't say more, but I've had a lot of comments on how cool that deer looks because he just looks like a Mike Tyson type deer, you right. know. And, and I, I saw one thing I mounted, and he's up there in the store with all my other mounts. I'm like, wow, I get a lot of comments on that deer. He actually is pretty cool. He looks pretty bad because I actually mounted him like he was in a fighting position. Oh, nice. So that was that was one time where I I didn't pay attention. Once I said I'm going to shoot that deer at that 60 yards away, I never looked at his antlers again. And after that, I started paying a little bit closer attention. And it, it wasn't three years ago in Michigan, I had what would have been a Pope and Young buck. I think he would have been in the upper 120s. And it was an eight point. It would have been an eight point. And he came through in this one location where I took a steel uh, saw cutter. And it was in all these nasty, nasty briars. And I I had cleared lanes through these briars for the deer to transition through to go by my tree. Otherwise they were making a big circle and he was coming right down this lane that I made 12 yards and I came to full draw and I, you know, at full draw, I went Meh, and he stopped. And just before I shot, I looked at the antlers one more time and his right G2 was broke right flush with the top of the main beam. So I let my bow up. So he was only a seven point. He would have scored, you know, because it was a G2 and it would have been a 10 incher to match the other side. You know, he probably would have been a upper 120s, which would have knocked. So that knocked 20 inches off him basically because he didn't have a 10 inch G2 to match the one on his left side. Right. So he would have been a six or seven inch buck. Yeah. If you're looking for net scores, that hurts it pretty bad. Yeah. And I've, shot 58 points and 26 10 points so i need another eight point like i need a hole in that <laughs> so i i let him walk but that i mean but that was a time where i you know i was at full draw and i said i'm gonna i look at the antlers a little bit more now than i used to especially if i'm out of state i always pay attention to the antlers out of state because because i'm always going out there late and it's so common for him to have busted antlers yeah so as far as the checklist you're you're not talking uh through like anchor breathe squeeze or you're doing anything like that or no 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 all that stuff's pretty automatic and then last question i had on the shooting is because you hunt very high relative to a lot of other hunters how does that impact where you aim on the deer so let's say you're hunting 25 to 30 feet what are you targeting on the deer i mean i'm, I'm sure it varies depending on whether it's eight yards away or 25 yards away but do you adjust your uh, point of aim for that elevation absolutely yep i like to shoot them like 15 to 18 yards when i'm over 25 feet high and again i always practice from a similar height and sight in from a similar height is what i'm hunting so as far as accuracy it doesn't affect my accuracy if you practice from the ground shooting straight level with the ground and then you shoot from a tree you're probably going to end up shooting eye because you're shooting triangle changes your eye to anchor point gets shorter because your head's tilting because you're tilting down so much so you're going to shoot high so i practice from the top of my house off a platform so i'm replicating the same you know triangle that i'm going to be having when i'm actually shooting at a deer but if i if i if I get a straightaway, somewhat straightaway shot or something that's going to be under 10 yards, I'll aim back a little farther and shoot them through the liver as opposed to single lunging them. Because single lung 
deer are very difficult to find, and they very frequently they survive. They do not die. I've killed I've killed three bucks that have had scarred over lungs, single lungs from previous arrows, somebody else's arrows. So, and and I've talked to doctors before, and because the first deer I shot where I knew I single lunged him was in the seventies, and I asked, I had a doctor friend, and I said, man, I know I single lunged this deer, and I can't find him. And my also, I also didn't have a pass through, so all the blood was internal, didn't exit through the brisket. And he said, well, if a deer, you know, deer kind of like people, people live with a single lung. And if a deer beds down and you don't go through the center of the lung, you just clip the edge of the lung. If a deer beds down, as long as the blood from the cut lung is not going into the good lung where they're going to drown, he said they will survive. That blood will coagulate and quit bleeding and, you know, they can live on that single lung with no problem whatsoever. And a lot of dog trainers that I know... When they talk to somebody, that's one of the questions they ask. Well, was it a straight down shot? Do you think you hit a single lung? And a lot of guys don't like blood trying to find single lung shots because they don't, they're not very successful at it. Now, if you say you shot it in the liver or the guts, they're almost 100% success rate on recovering those deer, depending on how you left the blood trail prior to calling the dog trainers. But I'll pull back into the liver. I'll just give it a lot more time to expire. Because you shoot a deer in the liver, it's rarely going to go over 200 yards before it beds down and, and just it'll lay there in a nice bedded position and die. Or guts. The guts are the same way. They'll go to the best first security cover they have because they get really sick and lay down and die. You just got to give them time. That's not something to add on the agenda, but real quick. So... Obviously, if you know you double lung a deer and let's say you see it go down, how long would you wait there versus a liver? Uh, how long would you wait and versus a gut? So let's say you're confident you know you shot it in one of those three places. What What is the wait time like for you? If I double lung a deer and I see it go down, I just get down immediately. Or if I double lung a deer and then I hear a crash, I'll, just, I'll get down right away. If I liver shoot a deer and I know I liver shot a deer and I did it intentionally, I'll I get down, I'll get down immediately and I'll go the other direction. I'll go 180 degrees opposite direction of where that deer is. Now, if I can visually see the deer, you know, because a lot of times you shoot a deer in the liver, they'll run a few yards and then they'll kind of hunch up with their back up in the air. I've had them actually bed down within sight. And that, if that's the case and it's an evening hunt, I'll wait till after dark and quietly get down and exit. So I don't want them seeing me getting down because I may spook them and they may run farther. But um, yeah, tip, typically, if I if I hear if I know I double lunged a deer and I hear him crash, or obviously if I see him fall, because there was a, there was a period where I thir- thirteen deer in a row I watched them all expire from seeing them fall from the tree, uh, and I yeah I'll get down immediately because they're they're dead. <laughs> right. What about on a liver shot? If you know or you're pretty confident it's uh, just liver, no lungs. How long are you waiting to re- to go recover that deer? Typically, if it's an evening shot, it's over uh, overnight, and hopefully hell, the coyotes don't get them. And I've had coyotes get three of my deer. And then what about in the morning? If it's in the morning, um, late afternoon. Okay, so you're giving it six hours? If I do go in and look, uh, I also go a little bit by the blood trail. If it's a pass, If it's a clean pass-through, if there's really good blood, if I shot him in the morning and I'm going back six, eight hours later, 
yeah, I'll keep going. But if that blood starts to peter down a little bit, there's a good chance I'll back out and wait until wait until morning. Okay. Because typically they're not going to go very far, and usually if you shoot them through a liver and you get an exit, so you got a full pass through, there's going to be pretty decent blood to where they bed down and die. So if, if you're blood trailing them and then the blood starts to peter out, you probably didn't go through the center of the liver. You probably clipped one of the edges, and it's going to take them a lot longer to die. I've seen deer 18 hours after they've been shot in the liver still alive. They couldn't get up and move, but they were not dead. Because when you go through the front of the liver, the arteries are really big. The veins are big coming into the front of the liver. So if you cut those, they're going to die fast. But towards the back of the liver, where it's by the stomach, you know, the liver gets real thin and the, the arteries are really tiny. So it takes a long time for them to bleed out if you shoot them in the back of the liver. Yeah, that's why I was curious for your perspective, because the, the rule of thumb I always heard on a liver shot was to be safe, to give it at least six hours. And, uh, yeah, you know, like you said, they could they could live longer, but usually by that point, they're in pretty rough shape to where either you know enough to leave and they're they're not too far if you come back if they're still alive or even to the point where if you know if it's illegal in your area you can get another arrow in them yep i took a guy hunting uh in the early 90s and he shot an eight point two and a half year old eight point and he said he he man i punched this deer right through both lungs and so i'm like cool and there was a lot of blood we had a lot of blood at first and it was a clean pass through and we went like 150 yards and that blood just started petering out and you that's just the true sign of a liver shot. <laughs> and I said, Chad, you did not double lung this deer. He'd be dead by now. Right. You don't double lung a deer and have it go 150 yards. So, and it was dark. By then it's dark. And I said, I've got to work tomorrow. I said, but if I were you, I'd come, I'd think we should leave and you come back in the morning. Well, he, he came back in the morning and he, and when I say morning, he came back at 11 o'clock. So it was later in the morning. And he found that deer about 200 yards from where we stopped. And he, the deer tried to get up and run. He just couldn't get up. He was just, he was, he was that close to being dead. And, and he didn't bring his bow. He figured he'd be dead. I said, that deer will be dead in the morning. Well, I was wrong. It was not dead yet. One of my first big bucks, the first big buck I ever shot, I, I gut shot it. And we went back the next day and it was still alive. I went back the next day myself and it was still alive and, and he got up and ran. So I went and called some, some buddies of mine and this back when there was only landlines and these two guys were six, seven and six, five. And they came back with me and we were, and it was in a swamp. It was in a swamp with water and these guys had leather boots on. I had hip boots on and we were, going through the swamp and that doe got up or I'm sorry that eight point got up and started running and these guys chased that damn deer down <laughs> and they they actually knocked it down and one guy's holding on to his antlers and they had no clue because these guys were in their late 20s you know when you're that young and you're that big you think you're Goliath sure they're holding on to this deer for their dear life because <laughs> these they were trying to keep this deer now from goring them. It was that serious. And these two guys were big boys. Yeah. And I'm, I run up to him and it, Bill said, you got a knife? And I said, yeah, I got a knife. And he said, well, give me that goddamn knife. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to kill you when we <laughs> get this thing done. So, so I gave him a, I gave him a knife and he stabbed it through the, 
side of the, he at least had sense enough to stab it, you know, in the chest. Yeah. A lot of guys will try and slice their neck and they don't, or stab their neck and they don't die very fast that way. Unless you can slice the neck and cut the juggler. Yeah. They don't die by stabbing them in the neck. You got to stab them in the, in the chest or cut the juggler. I'm going to just stay right out of that deer rodeo business and, and shoot them again with the bow if I have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're getting close to the, the last topics here, John. One of the things that I'd be real interested in is I know, well, you just mentioned earlier in the podcast that you're still conducting scouting workshops, and I imagine you've seen a ton of hunters through those over the years and you know through the shows talked to a ton of hunters. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions or mistakes that you see from the broader deer hunting population on a consistent basis that are, that are holding the average guy back? Oh, I think scent control is by far the number one. Most guys don't have a scent control, and half the guys don't believe there is such a thing as scent control. And, and I know 100% for a fact there is. But uh, I think to a deer, there's, their nose is their number one ally, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so when you can fool their when you once you get by their nose, it makes things a lot, lot easier. So that, that would be the main thing as far as just, the way people hunt trees, I think a lot of guys hunt inferior trees. They don't get in the right tree. They don't get up high enough. There are, a lot of people are afraid of heights or they don't practice from a similar height. So they don't know how to shoot at the shot angles. Definitely one of the biggest things is people don't pay attention to security cover. Even when I'm in Kansas and Iowa, I, I still hunt security cover because mature bucks are security cover oriented. Yes, out there, bucks will move in open areas during daylight hours. But still, they prefer to move where there's quick exit security cover. That's just a natural thing as deer mature. So I never hunt a location that's not somewhat security cover oriented, and a lot of people don't. And when we're doing these videos on public land, it's very obvious. They got these stands out in the middle of open timber, you know, with no understory. While there's rubs up and down both edges in the brush and the security cover edges, nobody's hunting there. They're all out in the open timber where they can see, they got a bigger visual. They probably see some does, they see more deer. Um, you know, if you're, if you're pursuing mature bucks, they're a different breed of animal. You, if you're not successful doing what you're doing, if you're not successful killing mature bucks the way you've been doing it, and you've been doing it for 10 or 15 years, you're obviously doing it wrong and you need to change what you're doing. If you think you're going to keep hunting the same way and you're going to just start killing them because you feel like you're going to get lucky, that's not going to happen. If you hunt like everybody else, you're going to have the same results as everybody else. So if if you want to step your game up and, and hunt mature bucks, you have to pay attention to details. You have to pay attention to security cover. You have to pay attention to what locations are going to be suitable for a daytime activity by a mature buck because you're not hunting year and a half and two and a half year old bucks anymore. You're hunting a much, much smarter deer and you have to hunt accordingly. So you got scent control, uh, location preparation, you know, being in the right types of tree, trees, seasonal daily timing. I can't believe how many guys, when I'm taking them on these workshops, I've got several locations prepped at apple trees, and they're just shocked that you can't hunt an apple tree in the morning. Well, of course you don't hunt a master of fruit tree in the morning because the deer, you're going to spook them with your entries. So, you know, you've got to know 
the daily timing of each location as well as the seasonal timing of each location. When you set up a location and you know it's going to be a rut phase location, leave it for the rut phase. Don't hunt it in mid-October where you're changing the doe activity. People want to hunt. You know, they go back and they see these scrapes and they're active. Well, just because they're active, that doesn't mean the mature buck's working them in the daytime. And by you hunting it in October when the mature bucks are nocturnal, all you're doing is altering the doe activity at that primary scrape area. Because the primary scrape area is because there's is there because there's doe activity. And when you alter that doe activity, so that doe activity, if it's a feeding location, is coming in after dark, well, then that's when the mature buck's going to come in when he does start pursuing those does when they get in heat or his testosterone levels get high. So... All of that little stuff matters. You know, you be patient. To hunt mature bucks, you got to be patient and have a lot of locations. You know, I talk to guys all the time on my workshops. God, I can't believe how many locations you've got. I've got one. I've got one spot where I've got four different trees prepped within 50 yards of each other, because from one year to the other, the location changes. There's little subtle changes. It's where there's an oak and where there's an apple tree and and it's like 100 yards off of a crop field. So the crop rotations adjust which tree I'm going to hunt to and also the mast from the oak or the fruit from the apple tree adjust. And it's also in an area where there's some really heavy autumn olive. So the years where the oak's not producing or the apple tree's not producing, the deer don't go to those. They go through the center or the edge of the other edge of the autumn olive. So I got a tree over there. So... You can't have too many trees because from one year to the next, one tree might be hotter than another. And on that one piece of property, 37 acres of huntable land, I've got 20 trees, 20 or 21 trees. And this year I've got, I'll probably have 50 trees prepped on between public and private this year. And I'll probably hunt 10 or 15. And it should be good this year because uh, it's in this, this one place is in standing corn. So there hasn't been a killer, a buck I would shoot there for three years, but the property's laid out good this year. The trees, the apple trees had blossoms on them, so they're going to have apples. All the crops are in standing corn, which is what I prefer. So if there's a good buck on that this year, I, I think I'll have a good opportunity. But um, you, you just have to hunt different. If you're killing a year and a half and two and a half year old bucks and you want to step up to three and a half year olds, you've got to hunt different and do not expect consistent success from year to year it's pretty easy to kill a year and a half or two and a half year old buck every year i pass those up all the time but if you're targeting three and a half year old and older deer and you're in a state like a michigan or a pa or a west virginia you are going to have years where you don't kill anything and you're going to have a lot of years where you won't see a deer you would shoot so you just have to be patient and you have to accept the fact that there's going to be years you're not going to kill anything uh, that's just the way it is <laughs> Yeah, hard to shoot what's not there. You can't kill it if it doesn't exist. <laughs> right. right. No, that that's a really good uh, summary of a lot of the points we talked about. I think one of the, the big themes, and that was what I opened the first podcast with, is getting organized. And it seems like those the high-pressure states, and again, you know, I hunted most of my hunting life in Michigan, you just can't make the same level of mistakes, and you can't overlook those details if you want to have – any kind of consistent success. And, and even then it's a challenge for even the best hunters, like you said, to have three or four year old deer or better every year. It's just, just really tough. It's really tough because they don't exist. Right. <laughs> and, 
And you know what, though? I mean, hunting's hunting, and, you know, Michi- Michigan's hands down the toughest state. But, man, there's there's lots of tough states. Tennessee, Louis, or, yeah, Louisiana, Carolinas, all Delaware, New Hampshire, all those northeastern states where there's huge populations for how small the states are, New York, Virginia, West Virginia. Um, I, I just get tired of beating up on saying Michigan because people get sick of hearing that. <laughs> I don't blame them. Um, there's a lot of tough states. Uh, and the guys that live out in the you know Midwest and southern Ohio, southern Indiana, southern Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, they should just feel they should just feel very fortunate that they live in those states where there's lots of big bucks and you don't have to be as detail oriented to kill those. You just, you just, it's just a fact. You just don't, but I, I don't want to condemn those guys. They're just fortunate that they live there. All right. Nothing wrong with what they're doing. It's just diff- different. That's all just different. And a guy that's really good out there, he would struggle to come to Michigan or a PA or something. It would take him several years, but if he's a really dedicated hunter, He's gonna. He would figure it out. It would take him a few years, but I'm sure he would figure it out. It would just be totally different than what he was used to hunting. Yeah, that's one of the things I found helped me the most hunting different states is just adapting to different trains and you know different techniques and different approaches work in different states. And and coming from Michigan, I I am thankful that I grew up in a place that is hard to hunt bigger deer because it it inevitably made me a better hunter and, and now I have better results than I probably would have had otherwise when I. And hunt these other states. Yeah, and hey, you know what? When it gets to like turkey hunting, to me, Michigan's one of the easiest states that there is to kill a damn turkey. Yeah. <laughs> you go out to Missouri and Mississippi and down those southern states where turkey hunting is almost as popular as deer hunting, their birds are tough to tough tough to kill. They kill you know, some of those states give you three or four permits and Man, those birds are just really call shy, and they're really smart. Michigan's got really stupid turkeys. So, <laughs> when it comes to turkeys, come here if you want to kill a big turkey. We got lots of them. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I tell people too. And you mentioned earlier, uh, if you want to kill a deer—not necessarily a trophy deer, but a deer—Michigan's a great place to hunt for opportunity. It's just a bad place to hunt for trophies. Yeah, well, deer and deer hunting. Uh, the editor of Deer and Deer Hunting, Dan Schmidt, wrote an article about five years ago the best states to kill a deer. I'm, and I'm just saying a deer. Could be a doe of 4.6 point. And Michigan was the top state. Yeah, I'd believe that. He said, Michigan, number-wise, we have got just a lot of a lot of deer. And we do. We have a lot of deer. Yeah, it's a weird dynamic because uh, you had a lot of deer and you think, well, why isn't there big bucks? But then you had in all the hunters and, and, like you said before, sandy soils and stuff and just doesn't add up to uh, trophies all that often. Yep. I've been kind of blown away because some of the guys that are, have came to my workshops have driven from, you know, all over the Southern Louis. I had a guy from Louisiana. I had a guy from Delaware last week, a guy from PA. And before, before we're getting kind of green now, everything's kind of green. So driving down the highway, a lot of the dead deer, you can't see them because they're covered up with grass. Yeah. But when they were coming in like uh, March into the April shops before we had, when we still had snow on the ground, these guys were freaking out. I can't believe how many dead deer there are on the side of the road. I counted over 50 in about a 100-mile stretch. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we got a lot of deer. <laughs> well, John, to, to close it out here, I'd like to ask you a question that I've asked 
some of the other people that I consider to be really big figures, influential figures in the DIY public land, you know, knock on door permission space. And I'd like to know in, in your words or your opinion, what do you want your legacy to be in the hunting community? And how do you think you'll be remembered? I just want my legacy to be that I've, I have tried throughout my hunting career to help other people become better hunters. Workshops, or that's the reason they're there. The books I wrote, they were all instructional. I don't put out kill videos to pat myself on the back or anything like that. Obviously, I have to say my kill, my kill background and my bio, because if I don't give out my bio when I'm writing instructional information... There's no reason for anybody to believe anything I'm saying. So I feel like I've got to give my bio for credibility for anybody reading my stuff to put any credence in it. So I I just like to help hunters become more consistent at killing whatever they're trying to kill. And that's about it. Well, I can say for at least one hunter, that being myself, that the, the books were, and I talked about this in the first podcast, were instrumental to, to getting me out of the traditional hunting over bait Michigan style where, where a lot of people take that approach and to start getting me on some better deer and, and to shape the skills that I developed as a hunter. So, oh, you a big debt there. And I'm sure there's uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that feel the same way. So I think uh, mission accomplished there. Well, thank you. I know there's over a thousand because I've got well over a thousand testimonial letters guys killing deer after they've read the books and and stuff like that or the dvds and um and that and that's really gratifying when i get guys hey man you've changed the way i hunt and i'm killing nice bucks now and you know for the area yeah that really makes me feel good and i try to answer everybody's questions when they email me and so yeah that's all that's all awesome to me and i and i also cut through the bullshit. I, you know, there's so many guys that promote things for money and I don't, you know, this, I promote Sunlock because it's activated carbon. If Sunlock didn't do activated carbon, whoever did it, that's what I would promote. People lie like hell on their websites because they're trying to sell a technology and the technology may not work. You know, like I, I think I said about your other podcast, you know, if I, if I see some sort of a technology hunting companies don't own r and d's they don't have staff scientists they don't develop squat <laughs> so <laughs> they if they have a technology they're getting it from another industry or governmental body or the auto industry or something they're getting it from someplace else soaps or shampoos or scent sprays um so i i always google the technology i never ever look pay attention to anybody's website because They've got a monetary reason for trying to say something that's not true and nobody's going to sue them for it. That's something else where people may think I'm endorsing something for money. That's never, ever the case. You know, those hunting companies, they don't have R&D, but, you know, they do have pretty good marketing departments. They got really good marketing departments. (laughs) I think that's where most of the budget goes, that's for sure. Correct. Yeah. Again, John, thanks for taking the time, especially doing this twice back to back and that's why I was so excited to talk to you because you're putting out information and material that works for, you know, the blue collar guy every day, do it yourself hunter guys that don't own land or are on permission or whatever. And, and that's 
I'm, I'm sure you're aware uh, that's the biggest part of the hunting community. I mean, that's probably 85, 90% of, of hunters out there. And so that's appealing and your message is appealing to a lot of folks and, and it's been helpful. So thanks again on, on behalf of everyone that you've helped. You bet, Jeremy. My, it was my pleasure. All right. Well, hey, good luck this season. We'll be following along. All righty. Thank you. All right. Have a good one, John. Thanks.